0: Uh, You'll quickly realize that we're reading a genre of scripture, which is a little different from what we're often used to, Uh, but I hope that as we go, you'll get a feel for what's going on in this drama. Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. And cried out in pain as she was about to give birth then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. We'll leave it there. We will also uh, now read... Uh, from the Belgic Confession, Article 12. We believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing when it seemed good to him by his word, that is to say, by his Son. He has given all creatures their being, form and appearance, and their various functions for serving their Creator. Even now, he also sustains and governs them all according to his eternal providence, And by his infinite power, that they may serve man in order that man may serve God. He has also created the angels, good, that they might be his messengers and serve his elect. Some of them have fallen from the excellence in which God created them into eternal perdition. And the others have persisted and remained in their original state by the grace of God. The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it, like thieves, with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. So then, by their own wickedness, they are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments. For that reason we detest the error of the Sadducees who deny that there are spirits and angels and also the error of the Manichaeans who say that the devil originated by themselves being evil by nature without having been corrupted. Let's pray and then we're going to think about this theme together. Lord God, we pray now for your wisdom and uh, insight, Lord, that you would give us your truth from your word as to how we should think about Satan and demons and how we should respond. And we pray, Lord, that what we think about tonight would not be mere head knowledge, but that it would have relevance to our lives, it would lead us to treasure the gospel more deeply and to live for you more fervently. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, this evening in our Living Theology series, we want to continue thinking about the spiritual world. Now, if you were here a little while ago, you might remember uh, that we had a sermon on angels. And now today we come to something of the the flip side of that, which is Satan and his demons. Uh, And as we begin, I'd like to read a little quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's written an insightful, humorous book called The Screwtape Letters. It's, it's, it's a letter between a, a senior devil and a junior devil. But at the start, Lewis writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. End quote. So two errors. You could deny that devils exist. Or you could believe that they exist and be obsessed with them. And I wonder, in your own life, and in our church here at Riverbank, which of those two errors do you think we're more likely to fall into? Unless I'm mistaken, it's almost certainly the first one. Uh, in a recent article, Christian writer Trevon Wax asks this helpful question. He says, Is it possible, even in, among people who take the Bible seriously and believe demons are real, that we have psychologized or downplayed the matter to the point of losing any sense of real spiritual warfare? What might have led us to this point? Trevon Wax has two suggestions. The first is that we might have witnessed extremes in this area from other Christians or other denominations. And, and we've come to think that all talk of demons is, is an unhealthy fascination to be avoided. Or second, Trevon Wax writes, talking about Satan and demons in evangelism and discipleship among respectable and sophisticated people feels out of place. It just sounds a little nutty, like talking about the existence of fairies. Now, I wonder if that could be true for us, but, but whatever the case, our goal this afternoon is to see what God's Word says about Satan and demons. And we're going to ask a number of questions about this, And our first is this, where did Satan and demons come from? Where did they come from? Well, the Bible is clear that before the creation, God existed on his own. Colossians 1.16 tells us that in the beginning, everything was made by him. Everything, including Satan and demons. Now Genesis 1 also tells us that everything he made was good. The Bible is very clear that God is not the author of evil. So this means that Satan and demons were originally part of God's good creation, part of the spiritual realm of angels that we looked at previously. Well then what happened? Uh, There are two key passages in the Bible that explain this. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And in Jude 6 it says, The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So some of the good angels fell into sin. What was the sin? We can't be sure, but Jude 6 seems to suggest that they wanted to exalt themselves over God. They didn't want to keep their own positions. They wanted more. It's really the essence of all sin, isn't it? proudly rebelling against the Great One, wanting to take control for ourselves instead of humbly worshipping Him. When did it happen? Well, we aren't really sure, but presumably it had to happen after the creation in Genesis 1 and before the serpent arrives in Genesis 3 to tempt Eve. And also note from these passages that the sinful angels remain under God's authority. It says they're chained and awaiting final judgment. Presumably, chain doesn't mean they can't do anything at all, but God has them under His control, and he's limiting what they can do. He's, he's got them on a leash. The Bible also tells us that Satan uh, is the leader of these rebellious angels. Satan is the criminal mastermind. He is the original gangster. Jesus says of Satan in John 8:44. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And 1 John three verse eight says, "The devil has been sinning from the beginning. And this, this evil mastermind, he leads an army of evil minions. Matthew 12:24 calls him "the prince of demons." Not only does Satan rule over the fallen angels, but John also says that Satan is the ruler of this world. John chapter 12. Similarly, in 1 John 5:19, it says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Which doesn't mean that Satan controls the whole world. We, we know, don't we, that God is sovereign over all. But whenever John uses the word world, he's really referring to this this present evil system of our world. Everything that is in opposition to God. And Satan heads that up. This is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world... And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And a few chapters later in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, to to recap, demons are angels who were originally part of God's good creation, but they sinned long ago by rebelling against God. This army of demons is led by Satan. And with their help, Satan now rules over a spiritual kingdom of evil, which is invisibly at work in our world. Which leads us to the second question we want to ask, which is, what is the mission of Satan and his demons? What are they trying to achieve? Well, we get our first clue with the name Satan, which means adversary. Whose adversary is he? Uh, He's not first and foremost our enemy, but God's. He hates God. He despises Him. And so he and his demons delight in opposing God and trying to destroy whatever God does, which is why they attack humans, because we are the pinnacle of God's creation with the apple of His eye. Now, in the Old Testament, we really only get small insights into how Satan is at work. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll remember that God's people, Israel, they were constantly struggling with the allure of pagan idolatry. And there's a few verses which show us that behind the scenes, Satan was actually at work in that. He was doing everything he could to drag Israel away from God to their ruin. When Israel turns to idols, they're really turning to worship demons. Deuteronomy 32 says, Israel stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked Him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. And then in Psalm 106, it says that these sacrifices included child sacrifices of their sons and their daughters, which were to the demons. Now, in the New Testament, the curtain is pulled back, and we get a much clearer insight into what Satan is trying to achieve. Uh, A nice summary from... Thomas Sappington is this. He says, Satan leads a spiritual kingdom composed of demonic powers who oppose God's purposes through various schemes that are designed to keep men and women out of God's kingdom and to render Christians immature and ineffective in reaching the world with the gospel of Christ. We're going to unpack that now. So, for those who aren't Christians... Satan wants to numb, calm, mislead, deceive them so that they will never find God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hmm. That is a heartbreaking picture, isn't it? It's the state of every single person you know who's not a Christian. Your neighbours, your co-workers, your friends, your family. Satan is plying them with sleeping drugs, so they won't wake up. He's distracting them with endless entertainment. So that their every waking moment is a relentless wallowing in that which is shallow and trivial and inane. Really anything that isn't God. Satan doesn't even mind if they're religious. In fact, that might help. Because it might make them think that they're enlightened even while they're deceived. Just so long as their religion has some kind of false view of God and some twisted, distorted gospel. Satan's oldest trick is to lead people away from the light of the world into darkness, all while persuading them that they are becoming more and more enlightened. And Riverbank, when we say that our goal is to love our community, to evangelize our city, this is what we're up against. Let us not be naïve. Let us not be prayerless. Let us not think that the work of outreach will only involve a small amount of effort. Let us not think it will be easy or quick. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. But what about Christians? What is Satan seeking to do in their lives, in our lives? Well, he is enraged by Christians. Because as it says in Colossians 1.13, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That's what's happened to us. And Satan cannot take away our salvation. And so instead he does everything he can to make us immature. He wants you to be an ineffective insecure lukewarm half-hearted christian who is content with a half-baked faith that never really sets your heart on fire for god or his word or prayer and never really sets the course of your life towards truly living for him in everything you do satan wants for you a life of distractions full of good intentions that never really happen. A life of lingering doubt and guilt and fear. A life in which you find yourself largely content with how you're going, even as the subtle toxic hypocrisy and pride in your heart and my heart chokes our faith and makes us basically useless to God. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 Be alert and of sober mind your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour What weapons does Satan use to attack us He's not very creative His two favorite weapons have always been temptation accusation. First temptation. The Bible calls Satan the tempter. How does he tempt? Through deception. He is the master of lies, the father of lies. He lies by twisting and distorting reality. And then when people believe his lies, he gains power over them. It's Genesis 3, repeating itself over and over again. Did God really say? Satan doesn't have the power to control us against our will. It's only when we sin, when we choose to rebel against God, that he gains power in our lives. And that is exactly what humanity has done. We have opened the door to evil. And Satan has waltzed in and set up shop. We have willingly taken the sleeping pill and Satan takes advantage of us in our drowsy state. Satan uses his half-truths to ruin churches, or he tries to. Some churches become so culturally relevant that they lose the truth of God's Word. Other churches appear to be absolutely committed to biblical truth. And yet they become spiritually stagnant with no heart for God's mission for the lost in our world. Satan also twists the truth to attack us personally. I wonder if you've heard this voice in your head. Ah, That sin isn't so bad. It won't ensnare you it won't have a negative impact on your life and faith you can handle it just a little bit god doesn't understand how hard things are for you at the moment you need it sure it wasn't the best choice but none of us are perfect right you couldn't help yourself satan's first weapon is is temptation His second weapon is accusation. The name devil means accuser or slanderer. Uh, In Revelation 12, which we read, verse 10 says, Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He's the accuser of Christians. How does Satan accuse us? He uses the law. He actually uses God's law to accuse us. As soon as we break God's law, Satan jumps on us and says, oh, you're such a failure. Aren't you a second-class Christian? God must be so disappointed in you. He gave you all this grace, and look what you've done with it. You've just let him down. Are you sure you're even saved? God could never use someone like you. Just give up now. So what is the mission of Satan and his demons? Well, they delight. They, they love opposing God and every good thing that he's doing in this world. And for unbelievers, they want to blind them so that they never find God and the joy of Christ and his salvation. And they also want to attack Christians so that we will be immature and insecure and ineffective In our faith. Okay. Well, we're not going to end there. (laughs) That leads us to our third question How powerful are Satan and his demons? And will they have this power forever? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that God is sovereign over. Satan and his demons. Uh, Isn't the story of Job just a wonderful illustration of this? We get an insight into the inner workings of the heavenly court and we find out that Satan actually needs God's permission before he can touch even one hair of Job's head. Everything that happens in our world, including all evil, only happens by God's permission. But that is not all. The Bible gives us a greater hope than just that. Way back in Genesis three fifteen, this is immediately after the serpent has tempted Adam and Eve and they've sinned. God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this mysterious prophetic promise that actually becomes central to the story of the Bible as it unfolds. It tells us that the history of our world is going to be a raging battle between Satan and humans. But someday, somehow, someone from the woman's offspring is going to bruise Satan's head with a fatal blow And humanity will be set free. And the search for that mighty warrior lasted thousands of years and it continued until the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus destroys Satan in four stages. Stage one, the temptation of Jesus. It's the Garden of Eden, take two human versus Satan, and the tempter struts in, and as usual, he takes God's word, and he twists it. But for the first time in history, it fails. It's the first crack in Satan's armor, because Jesus is perfectly loyal to God. He is sinless, and if you're sinless, then you're impervious to Satan's weapons, of temptation and accusation. Stage two is when Jesus begins his ministry and he begins proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom accompanied by miracles and exorcisms. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28 and 29, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then The kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, driving out demons isn't the main event. No, they point to a deeper reality. The kingdom of God has come. A kingdom that will destroy Satan's kingdom. But how? That brings us to stage three. When Jesus dies on the cross. To set humans free from sin. And then he rises again to conquer death. This is the moment that Satan is decisively defeated. He is detoothed. His weapons of temptation and accusation, they're rendered useless for those who stand at the cross. If we are no longer guilty, friends, how can the accuser accuse us? If our eyes and ears have been opened to the truth, then how can the deceiver deceive us? If we have inherited all the treasures and the joys of God's kingdom, then how can the tempter tempt us? This is what Revelation 12 verse 11 meant when it said, They triumphed over him. We triumphed over him. ...by the blood of the Lamb. Or as Paul says in Colossians 2... ...God forgave us all our sins... ...having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness... ...which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross... ...and having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Stage four is the final stage and is not here yet. It's when Christ returns again and Satan's defeat will be complete, final. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, friends, at the moment we are living between stage three and stage four. The defeat of Satan has already been decisively achieved on the cross. His power is broken. His grip on our world is slipping. The kingdom of God is coming and it's forcing back the darkness. Satan won't go down without a fight. But it won't be long before Genesis 3.15 is perfectly fulfilled. As Paul encourages us in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That leads us to just one final question. What does all of this mean for us? As Christians, how should we relate to Satan and his demons? Well, I actually want to return to this theme next week, Lord willing, to unpack a little more this idea of spiritual warfare and and the armour of God in Ephesians 6. But for now, let's just make two brief points of application as we finish. First, we should take Satan... And demons seriously God's Word is very clear they exist and their activity in our world is real now here in Launceston we may often not see that maybe that's partly because our society always tends to seek out a rational natural scientific explanation to everything we observe but theologian Wayne Grudem writes, There is no reason to think that there is any less demonic activity in the world today than there was at the time of the New Testament. Demonic activity is probably a factor in almost all sin and almost all destructive activity that opposes the work of God in the world today. End quote. It reminds us of the urgency of evangelism. And it should also keep us from being flippant about sin and temptation in our own lives. Sin is not something trivial. Satan wants to ruin your faith. He wants to destroy Riverbank. And we need to be sober-minded and wholly dedicated to God and pursuing holiness and not dilly-dallying with sin. So first, we, we need to take these evil spiritual forces seriously. But now second, don't let Satan and demons become your main focus. Our main focus should be Christ and the salvation that we have in Him. In Luke chapter 10... Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples on a mission trip, which includes uh, the power to drive out demons. And then it says in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. That's pretty amazing. But Jesus goes on, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Yes, Satan and his spirits are being defeated. It's amazing. But don't focus too much on that. That's just the side show. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And we see this, I think, throughout the New Testament. As you read through the New Testament, we're never sent out to search for demons. We're never given complex instructions for how to get rid of them. We're never told that in order to proclaim the gospel effectively, we will need to attack regional demons or territorial spirits or demonic strongholds over our city. No, the task that Jesus gives us is much more simple than that. He says, go into the world with the gospel. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is God's power to change lives. And we go in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can go with complete confidence. John says in 1 John 4, You dear children are from God and you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's confidence. The gospel is our weapon to reach the world. And it's also the way that we personally stand against the devil. The New Testament doesn't give us special tricks and techniques to fight off the devil. Instead, what are we repeatedly told? Focus on the gospel. Trust God. Pray to him. Flee from sin. Pursue righteousness. I hope that we can look at that in a bit more detail next week as we think about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. We've also run out of time tonight to answer the question, what about demon possession? Does that still happen today? And if so, what should we do about it? I hope we can tackle that next week too. But for now, let's finish with this reminder. Satan and his demons are a dangerous and destructive evil force in our world and we should take them seriously. But for those who are saved, we have nothing to fear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan has already been defeated by Jesus, and his final destruction is near. So let me finish again with Paul's reassurance from Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. World. And Lord, we're sobered to learn that there is a cosmic, invisible, spiritual battle raging in our world. And seeking to attack us and our church. We pray that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would deliver us from temptation. And we thank you that we can pray this with confidence because Jesus was tempted and he didn't give in. And then he came preaching a gospel of incredible good news, that there is a kingdom, a kingdom of light that will defeat the kingdom of darkness. And then he secured that victory on the cross as all of our sins and our guilt were washed away. And he rose again victorious, giving us sure and certain hope for the future. And so, Lord Jesus, we give you the praise and glory as our mighty warrior and our saviour, and our only sure defense against Satan and his demons. We thank you for coming to rescue us, even though we didn't deserve it. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come again soon. Send Satan where he deserves, and bring us into the peace and the glory and the safety and the joy of your presence forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll sing together uh, an old hymn, Safe in the Shadow of the Lord. I think that word safe uh, is a really appropriate feeling uh, as we land this theme tonight, safe in the shadow of the Lord. Let's stand and sing.